All right, so turn your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 11, starting in verse 38. <coughs> John 11, verse 38. Picking up the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. And uh, next week we'll have a Christmas message, and we'll pick this back up again after the first of the year. John 11, verse 38, and this is God's Word. Then Jesus... Deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him. And let him go. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, bets absolutely everything about the gospel he preached on what? The resurrection. He bets all of it. On the resurrection, he says, don't turn, I'm in it already. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive at the time of Paul's writing this. Go check it out with them. Most of these 500 are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me. Um, He goes on to say, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is is in vain. In short, if Jesus is dead, ladies and gentlemen, who cares? If Jesus is still in the grave, if he's defeated and he's dead, then let's just go to lunch. But if he's living and he's reigning and he's holding session at the right hand of the Father, that changes everything. changes everything about your future. It changes everything about the reality of the gospel. Paul bets absolutely everything on the resurrection. You think about that. Everything Paul ever preached, everything he was ever on trial for, the the times that he got stoned again and again and again, um, and, and what he was ultimately killed for, he bets everything on the underpinning of Jesus' own resurrection of the dead. Now, Jesus here does the same thing. He bets everything. Um, so far, um, in our, in our passage here, 
in our story. A number of components are in place. Um, Lazarus is confirmed to be dead. Also, the family is several days into their grief. Also, there are witnesses all over the place, both um, friendly and hostile, grieving and, <coughs> and onlookers. There are people all over the place observing what is going to happen here. Uh, also, Jesus is on the scene, and he is ready to command, in verse 43 it says, with a loud voice. So all these components are in place, and you know, it's interesting, the Gospel of John uh, has also been called the book of signs. Have you ever heard that before, the book of signs? It's because John, in his gospel, he uses the word signs instead of miracles, and there are seven signs, um, and from this sign, from this last miracle, this last one, the seventh one, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, everything changes. Everything changes in John's gospel, in the narrative. The Passover's coming up, you'll see. Um, Jesus is anointed at Bethany um, just before his uh, triumphal entry and his last entry, actually, into Jerusalem. Uh, the stage is set, and by chapter 13, I mean, we're not far away. By chapter 13, it's the upper room discourse where he's committed himself to the disciples, and he is days, or excuse me, he'll be, he'll be hours away from his arrest, from his trial, from his crucifixion, and from his own burial. The stage is set, and... Uh, of all, the, of all the signs that he, uh, he performs, they have something in common. They demonstrate what? Jesus' deity, which is a huge focus um, by the gospel writer John. Jesus stakes all of that stuff, his perfectly lived life. He stakes um, his earthly ministry carried out. He stakes his claims of being <coughs> an emissary for the Father, carrying out the Father's words and will and works. He stakes all of that on the single miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. If he doesn't do that, if he can't do that, if he says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus doesn't come out, it's all over. It's also interesting and poignant that the life uh, given to Lazarus here uh, actually results in Jesus' own death. I mean, he gives Lazarus life, and it's the thing that is the final straw that kind of spins the whole thing forward uh, unto the cross. All right, so that whole big introduction said, uh, here's our main idea. Jesus can give life to all who trust him. That is the message of his ministry. You know, people go, eh, wasn't Jesus all about blah, 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 blah? Wasn't the message of Jesus really blah, 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 blah? You can say, no, actually... The message of Jesus was that he can give life to the dead. That's the message of Jesus, that he can make the spiritually dead alive and have fellowship with the living God. All right, let's go to our first point, the dead man. I get that right from the passage, uh, the dead man um, in verse uh, 39. Well, look at verse 38. Let's look at it together. It says that then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Now, deeply moved again, uh, if you have a King James Version, um, it says uh, something like groaning in himself, right? Uh, he was groaning in himself. And, um, you know, that idea uh, of being deeply moved here, groaning in himself, is, is very much like that of a snorting horse. When a horse is upset, or a bull, you know, that kind of a thing, uh, a snorting, a deeply upset um, you know, in Matthew 9, when Jesus heals two blind, men's, blind men, heals two blind men, he sternly warms, warns them. 
uh, not to tell who he is because his time hasn't yet come. He sternly warns them. When he sternly warns them, hey, don't tell. Now listen, I've healed you. Don't tell anybody it's me. He sternly warns them. That's that same idea, that, that, that stirred upness. Um, also in Mark 14, that, that word or the, the, that word is used of um, dealing with a scolding or a grumbling against. They grumble against something. All right, so basically the idea is this. Jesus is deeply riled in the core of his person. He is deeply moved, uh, moved on to sadness, yes, but he is feeling the great indignity and travesty of sin and its effects. He is experiencing it uh, in real time. And I know I've told you this uh, in, in years past, maybe a few years ago, but maybe two weeks ago, who knows, I don't know. But um, I, I, was, um, I, I went to a funeral uh, several years ago, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, and uh, some people had visited our church, so let's pretend it's these folks, <coughs> and somebody's granny died, and she was in Arkansas three hours away, and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go. So I drove three hours. I don't know these people. They're brand new. I didn't know their granny. I didn't know anybody. She was old as the hills, and so, you know, there's like 17 people at the funeral, and so I went, and it was this country preacher, and I, 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 uh, I sat, and I attended the funeral, and I, I worshiped in that way, and I supported them in that way, and I signed the book, and I said hi, and um, I left, and I didn't know anybody there. I had no connection. Uh, I didn't know Granny. I didn't know her stories or about her cookies or anything like that, and uh, I'm walking out to my car for a three-hour drive back, and uh, I'm almost to the car, and I just burst into weeping. And I remember standing, my hand, I had my hand on the hot car, and I'm just out at my car weeping. Now, I'd been to like three other funerals within two weeks. But what I was feeling was the travesty and indignity of death. I didn't know this granny or these people, but I, I mean, that's what sin produces. It produces death. It produces separation from the living God. It shakes everything up and turns everything negative, and the barnacles of sin cling to this creation and take what God has made and take his intent and twist it and turn it. You know, a, a commentator I was reading said this. It, he said, it is inconceivable that Christ would think of sorrow and grief and not at the same time think of sin as, it, at, at its, as its cause. You know, he's not just seeing sad people weeping. He's going, they're weeping because sin has hurt the world and hurt these people personally and intimately. The commentator goes on to say this too. He was concentrating all his attention upon sin as the underlying cause of all suffering, all grief, all sorrow. He was filled with indignation against sin. Hey, you want a quick application? This is not the, the big application, but you want a quick one? Tuck that away, would you? Might that be a perspective shaper for you? You ever had a conflict with your spouse? You ever had a conflict with a child? You ever had a conflict with a coworker? Remind yourself, would you, that that person is a sinner and that sin makes people hurt and sin makes people miserable and sin affects their judgment? You know, one of the best pieces of advice we ever got when we went through a premarital thing <clears throat> back at Central Church with Cliff Riley. Anybody? Uh, there's probably nobody here that knows Cliff Riley. Cliff Riley. 
the, the best advice he, they, I ever heard was uh, when you're in a conflict, step away and say to yourself, my spouse is not my enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. <laughs> the enemy is the enemy. Your spouse is affected by sin, and so are you. And your spouse is miserable because of sin, and so are you. It's a perspective shaper, ladies and gentlemen. All right, back to the passage. Verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, there's the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. If you read a literal translation of that, it would say that he is a fourth-day man. You know, he stinketh. The important thing to note is that she ascribes the odor literally to decomposition. You know, the, Isra- uh, the, excuse me, the Egyptians embalm. The uh, Jewish people didn't embalm. Uh, they, uh, they didn't, that, was, that wasn't a part of their culture at all. Rather, they would anoint them. They put uh, you know, stuff on them and tried to hide the odor a little bit as long as they could. But then, you know, you stick them in the rock and you close the thing and you're done with it. I mean, that's, that's the end of it, all right? Um, you know, years ago, I went on a canoe trip and uh, I was single. I didn't know anybody. I had this friend that I worked with named Larry. He had a big black mustache. And uh, Larry goes, hey, uh, my church is having a canoe trip. You want to go? And I was like, okay. And there were like 20 people. We went, to, we went canoeing. And so I was in Larry's canoe. And we're going down the, some river thing in Arkansas. I don't know why I'm pedaling. Um, <laughs> but I'm new to canoeing. But anyway, <laughs> but we're going down and we're, we're like, we started smelling something real bad. I mean, really, 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 really bad. And I mean, for like two miles on the river, we're going, what is that? It was awful. We get up to it, and this cow had fallen off the ridge, and it plopped down. And it was like, got too close, like, and blam. And it was like half in the water. And uh, of course, you know, being two young, cool guys, we, we went past it with the current net, and then forced our way back up to get a, get a good look at it. But I mean, that thing was bloated. It was right before it was going to go kablooey. But man, what a, what a smell. Uh, what a profound smell. It's like bad chicken, you know? Well, application for your life. Um, let, me, let me show you. This is, a, this, is what, this is what a tomb might look like, okay, uh, back in that day. And this is probably a little bit kind of fancified. You know, this is not an uncommon picture anymore. It used to be kind of foreign to people. But, you know, when Jesus and all, but uh, um, at Easter and stuff, people show these kinds of pictures. But that's basically it. There's like a groove, and you put a body in there, and you roll the stone, and it kind of, the stone kind of goes in a little recessed thing. It goes, all right, so it's hard to get out, all right? And so that's basically what it looked like. But what would happen is they'd stick somebody in there, and the stone, you know, it's not a perfect seal. They close it up. They stay away from it, and then whatever happens in that thing happens in that thing for a while until it's you know stops happening. Um, well, what happens here demonstrates a um, spiritual reality. The raising of Lazarus really did take place. It really was a physical event, but it has a spiritual reality too. Um, you, you've got that hard line of sin and its consequences. Sin is so s- severe, and there's this foreverness to it, right? I mean, when somebody dies and they're put in the tomb, you go, well, they're gone. There's a foreverness, um, and sin has a foreverness to it. The punishment of sin, the consequence of sin has a foreverness. Uh, to be spiritually dead, as Paul says, dead in your transgressions and sins, that has a spiritual foreverness to it. You know, it stinketh. Well, God's nature, ladies and gentlemen, cannot be true to, untrue to his own self. 
He must punish sin. And so in bringing back Lazarus to life, Jesus shows us that the power of sin can be broken. And the reason it can be broken is that God's justice is met. God can't just overlook it. I know we have a statute of limitations on certain, certain uh, crimes in our culture, but God cannot simply overlook sin and sweep it away and go, oh, well, what the heck? It's been seven years. Ah, he can't do it. He would be untrue to his own nature. All right, what do we do with the foreverness of, of sin, of spiritual death? The only one who can do it is the giver of life. It is the Lord Jesus. You know, um, in verses... Um, 14 and 15, Jesus says this. He says, uh, Lazarus has died. For your sake, I'm glad he was not there so that you may believe. Um, that, that is to ring in our hearts, ladies and gentlemen. Lazarus has died, but believe that God can fix it. How can God fix it? He brings the giver of life, the author of life. He brings the righteousness of God. He takes upon himself a human nature. He dies in the sinner's place. God makes a way unto himself, whereby we can, when we were dead in transgressions and sins, be made, what? Alive, because of what Christ did. All right, next point, the glory of God. At this point, uh, Jesus takes the opportunity to summarize what he had set before Martha's heart uh, previously. In verse 4, look at it in chapter 11, verse 4, he had said, um, this illness, he said this to his disciples, this illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God, so that the, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, the glory of God. This illness does not need to lead to death. In others, uh, other uh, translations, it says, this illness is not unto death. And remember what Jesus had said to Martha previously in verse 23. He'd said, your brother will rise again. Also, what about his statements of his power over death and life and who he is and what he has the ability to do. He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? Well, here he is at the tomb. Martha's there. And he summarizes that in verse 40. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Now, friends, sometimes people take this as a chastisement by Jesus, like Jesus is scolding or going, hey, didn't I tell you? And you know, I hate when preachers do that. It's kind of like, oh, I don't want to be quick, but it's kind of like Jesus calms the storm. You know, the disciples come to him and they, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the boat's being swamped by the waves and Jesus is asleep and they wake him up and they say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? And then he rebukes the wind of the waves. I hate when preachers go, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith, you big dummies? Is that really what Jesus is doing at the tomb of Lazarus, scolding her? I don't think so. Is that what he's doing with the disciples? And by the way, it's really cool, too, because waves are crashing in on the boat and everything, and... Uh, and uh, he hasn't rebuked the wind and the waves yet. So it's loud and there's crashing and Jesus is wet and they're all wet. And, uh, and, a and so it, it's not like he's going, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. He's not doing that. It's crashing and booming. He's going, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. It's kind of like, watch this. 
Like, well, get a load of this, man. Wait till you see what's about to happen, and it happens. He's not chastising them, and he's not chastising Martha. He's saying tenderly, did I not tell? It's almost like wink, wink. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you see the glory of God? And then he raises her brother back to life. It's awesome. It's so loving. He's tender to her. Um, I think he's been taking her hand the entire way, and he gives her this invitation, which is simply to believe. Now, let's be careful to note what he's not saying. He's not saying the miracle is somehow dependent upon her belief. He's not saying that. He's he's going to bring the guy to life anyway, but he's taking her by the hand. By the way, let me just flip real fast. You know, at the very, very beginning of this gospel, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. This is Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And it goes on to say in verse 14, and the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, here he says, believe and you're going to see the glory of God. It is the divine son by creative fiat bringing life, just like the creation of the universe. Is that not awesome? And he brings about Lazarus. All right, so um, application for your life. (coughs) He invites Martha to believe. In fact, after he makes a statement about being the resurrection and the life, he says, do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe it? Well, that's your question. Do you believe it? It's kind of like this. Um, You remember being a little kid? Or let's say you're the parent. Let's say you're the dad, and you're in the pool, and your little child's on the the edge of the pool, and your little child's afraid to jump in, and you go, it's okay, I got you. And little child uh, uh, is uh, scared, and you're thinking, I know there's deep water. I know there's distance between you and me. I know people are watching, and it's scary. I know you're afraid, and I know what you're afraid of. Just look at me. Jump. I'll catch you. And faith is, (laughs) that's faith. And that's what God does. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, believe me. He said, forget all this. Forget all this stuff on the side. Laser in on me. Believe that I can do this. I've got you. I'm telling you, that is that is the scalpel's edge of belief in something or no. Will you jump and be airborne and let the God of glory catch you? All right, last point. Um, the man who had died, verse 41. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. We see that Jesus already had prayed. Isn't that kind of cool? He already prayed about this. Why had he already prayed? Well, because he always carries out the will of the Father, and he always works in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why does he pray again, knowing the outcome? Well, in verse 42, it tells us, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And then he does it. When he said these things, he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, All right, not a shroud, but linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, all right, so some kind of thing kind of hanging over his face. And Jesus said to him, go, unbind him, and let him go. Now, can you imagine? First of all, I mean, it's a funny funny scene. You think of that tomb, the the thing's open. (laughs) 
and uh, you know, his, his legs are bound, his hands are bound, and, and his, there's something over his face, and you know, he, out he comes, and they're like, unbind him. I mean, what a sight that must have been. But can you imagine what it would have been like <laughs> to be Lazarus, and you're made alive, and you're like, whoa, what the heck? <laughs> I mean, I, I can't. I, hey, and you hear people out there, and Jesus is summoned, and he hears it, and he comes. I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like? Well, speaking of that, and with this, we'll apply it in close. Lazarus was raised to mortal life again, wasn't he? But it was mortal life. That means that Lazarus died again. Now, I don't know if Lazarus had a massive heart attack or he died in a chariot race or whatever happened to him. Maybe he died instantly. Who knows? In his sleep, something. <clears throat> but more than likely, he had some malady or something that took him, and he had probably time to think about it. Who knows? But if he did, can you imagine what that would have been like? To be laying there with pneumonia in your last days, people surrounding you, um, what would Lazarus have been thinking? You know, I think you'd be looking at everybody else going, eh, first time, <laughs> not me. Uh, he must have been thinking. Do you think, that you think he was nervous or do you think he was calm? I bet he was pretty calm. I bet he was the calmest guy that ever died a second time. <laughs> He's probably laying there going, you know what? Christ has proved his ability to raise unto life, and I am going to be okay. Um, that, ladies and gentlemen, is your precise hope, that you're going to be okay, that Jesus can be trusted as a Savior, that He's alive, and you'll be alive again too. Um, verse 15, Jesus said, had said, I'm glad for your sake, the disciples' sake, that I was not there so that you may believe. He says in verse 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He says in verse 42, I prayed out loud like this so that they may believe this. And then in verse 26, he asks the question of Martha, do you believe this? And that's your question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the one path unto the Father, that no one comes to the Father but by him, that he is the way, the truth, the life, that he will give you the righteousness that is required for you to be okay with God because he took your sin debt and it was, he was killed in your place on the cross. Do you believe? If you do... Welcome to life. Welcome to life everlasting in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we bless you. And uh, we're exhilarated by um, what you have included in your word that we might know you more deeply. Oh, God, cause us to be uh, men and women who are, who are serious about the gospel and joyful in our relationship with you. Uh, oh, Christ, you are worthy Oh, Christ, you are the Savior. Oh, Christ, you are real. You are the giver of life and the sustainer of all things, the head of the church and our loving Lord. And we pray all these things gratefully in your name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you. Thanks for your patience.